0: So the reading today is from Luke chapter 5, and it's verses 1 to 26, and it's in your handouts. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralysed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up Take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today.
1: Father, we do thank you that you're a God who has spoken completely and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. We long to hear his voice so please would you speak to us and show us his beauty and his sufficiency our need of a savior and rescuer once again we are a people who are so easily distracted we're so forgetful and yet the more we go on we realize that we are a needy people and so please show us the beauty of jesus again i pray amen it was a thursday of this week and i found myself pounding the streets of West Yule and Epsom and it just caught my attention just how much building work there is going on at the minute. Because of uh, stamp duty due to uh, Mr. Osborne and one or two other factors, less people are moving, more people are extending. So you have the side extension, you have the kitchen extension, you have the loft extension, you have rubble being removed, you have extensions and footing being dug. There's just a pile of work going on in the borough of Epsom and in Yule. And it got me thinking when I looked at this passage that teaches us about the the salvation that Jesus has brought and the difference it makes to our lives. It got me thinking about this lovely quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote about the uh, transformative and the powerful difference that Jesus makes to a person's life. It's like a house builder. He said that humans, humans, people, we're interested in building building houses, but God is in the business of building homes. And C.S. Lewis says this, It's interesting, imagine yourself to be, every person here, imagine yourself to be a living house. You are a living house. And the thing is that God moves into your life. He moves into your living house. And he starts to change things. The first thing you notice is he starts to change things that you expect because the guttering needs fixing and the tiling's a bit wonky and the electrics are a bit duff, so they get done as well and everything is as expected. But then God starts to really go to work at things in a new way in your life, in your living house. He starts to take a sledgehammer to a wall here and there. He starts to put on not just a kitchen extension but a whole new wing. You might think that God is some sort of religious insurance but the more you come confronted with the person of the Lord Jesus the more you see that he's actually he's not building some sort of cottage he's not making you into something beautiful and twee he's in the business of transforming you into a palace where he can live. Humans build, they build hollow houses but God is in the business of building a living home. Where he can dwell. That's the message of the whole Bible. God is in the business of redemption, of rescue, of transformation. Not small change, significant, meta, big, grand change. He's after you and after your heart for somewhere to live in. It's transformation, it's global, that's the, uh, the message of Luke 5, back in Luke 4 where we were last week, verse 18. The Lord Jesus is there, he comes into the temple, he chooses the scroll of Isaiah and he says, this message is about me. And initially those people who, who heard it thought, yep, yeah, we're right behind you. And then the penny drops and they want to kill him. Jesus says, this is the salvation that I bring. It's about liberation to you because you're in captivity. It's about giving you sight because actually you're blind. It's about giving you freedom and release. It's about blessing you in so many spiritual ways, but also in this world. And Luke doesn't want us to be in any doubt at all about the reality of spiritual transformation, the reality of the the new home that Jesus is building in your life if you're a Christian. Jesus comes in with a sledgehammer and transforms your life, not just small change, global change, mentally, uh, psychologically, a new identity, new priorities. That's the message of the gospel. Sometimes this change will will be quick and radical. Sometimes it will be slow and deliberate, but just as radical. And having kind of explained these terms of liberation from captivity, chapter 4, verse 18, and, and proclamation of good news and a spiritual poverty... Luke wants to actually earth this now and go from kind of ethereal and and big concepts to actually saying, this is the difference it makes to your life. And here are three stories to prove my point, says Luke. It's the first three stories in chapter 5. It's the calling of the first disciples, an encounter with a leprous person and someone who's got chronic, uh, debilitating uh, life up to the encounter with Jesus. Someone who's a paralytic, someone whose legs don't work. But Jesus is in the business of transformation, and Luke says, this is what that salvation will look like in your life when Jesus comes in to build himself a home where he can dwell. Let's look at the first story together, verses 1 to 11. Jesus' salvation, Jesus's salvation transforms our relationship with ourselves. Okay, That's the first point from the first story. Jesus' salvation, this this liberty, this release from captivity, this uh, sight to blind people, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. If you know Jesus in your life, it's about transformation and it transforms our relationship to ourselves. Verses 1 to 11. Look at verse 3. Here's Simon, he's teaching in the boat, teaching, rather he's fishing, he's a fisherman, and Jesus says, can you just set out a little bit, I need to borrow your boat to create a natural amphitheatre so I can preach and teach, that's why I've come. It's been a long night for Simon, he's been fishing hard and catching nothing. But having finished teaching, verse 4, he tells Simon to, to go out again. I know fish come out at night, says Jesus, but I want you to go out in the daytime and try again. And Simon would have said something like, well, Jesus, you're a a carpenter, I'm a fisherman, yeah? But okay, I'll go out again. So he goes out in the daytime, not the nighttime, and verse 4, let down your nets, says the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, he lets down his nets, and there's the greatest catch of fish he's ever had in his whole life. It is supernaturally large. It is miraculously big. Verse 7, it's not just so big that there's enough for his own bank account to go through the roof and for his own boat to sink. Verse 7, there's enough for even that a second boat comes along and there's too much for even that. This is a huge catch of fish so that both boats are actually sinking. Verse 8, Simon's response is to look at Jesus with his knees knocking with his mouth in amazement, and he says, verse 8, go away from me. Go away from me. Jesus, verse 10, says, no, 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 no. That might be how you feel, but verse 10, I want you to follow me. And along with his friends, they do. Jesus calling the first disciples. Now, what are we to learn from this? Go fishing, possibly. Um, Fish in the daytime and pray, maybe. Try that, see if it works. What are we to learn here? I think it's his first point that the salvation that Jesus brings transforms our relationships to ourselves. It gives us a new identity. What do I mean? This is not just about an amazing catch of fish. This is about Simon encountering the Lord Jesus Christ and it changes his life forever. You might think that becoming a Christian, well, that's that's a, a personal thing, which it is. That's a transformational thing, which it is. But in our Western society, we can understand that salvation is just having our sins forgiven, and that's it. Period. Full stop. But in this story, we can see, actually, it's far greater than that. There is a transaction that happens when you become a Christian so that you are rescued from one kingdom and placed in a new one, from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, from slavery to freedom. But actually, Jesus is showing us in this story that an encounter with him, salvation with the living God through Jesus Christ, it transforms your identity in three ways. Look at what happens in this story. Verse 8, here's the first part of three. This miraculous catch of fish happens, and how does Simon respond? Get away from me, verse 8. Get away from me, Lord. I am sinful. The first thing that happens when someone becomes a Christian is that you begin to feel a whole lot worse about yourself. You begin to see the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the perfection, the awesome searing holiness of God. And to the degree you see that, your knees start knocking. Awe, reverence, holy fear, a self quaking within your own spirit. And you wanna say, just like Simon, get away from me. How can you, the holy one, be close to me? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know the mistakes that I've made? Don't you know the beds that I've slept in? Don't you know the things that I've watched? Get away from me. I'm a sinful person. Every time in the Bible, when God comes close to a person, this is the reaction they have biblically. Get away from me. Think of Abraham. Think of Moses in the burning bush. Take off your shoes. You're in a holy place. Think of Ezekiel seeing a glory, just the, just the hem of a robe in the temple. And he says, Depart from me. I've got unclean lips. Think of Job. Job sees something of the glory of God as God speaks at the end of the book of Job. And what's his response? Silence. He's nothing to say when he's spoken a lot. Think of Peter. Think of Paul. Maybe think in your own life. One of the signs that, signs that God is at work in your life is that he comes with a sledgehammer into your experience and the first part of this transformation in your own being is that you see the glory of God and you want to say, get away from me because you are holy and I'm not. You are pure and I'm not. Pride is replaced with humility. The second thing, notice verse 10, at the very same point that Simon says, I'm a sinner, you are holy, get away from me, Jesus comes close and he affirms him in a way that he's never been affirmed before. Verse 10, simultaneously, he's feeling the worst he's ever felt and the most loved he's ever felt. Verse 10, Jesus says, with such warmth, I'm sure, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. From now on, you will catch men. You're good at catching things. Well, perhaps you're not because you didn't catch so much. But with me, you will. You <laughs> will. But no longer will you catch fish, you're going to catch men. Now this translation is very unhelpful. The the actual Greek word has the sentiment of giving liberty to people. That's what Jesus has said in chapter 4. Being a Christian, being engaged with the mission of God and the kingdom of God is about saving people, about giving liberation and freedom through Jesus Christ. That's what catching people means. Jesus doesn't say, do you want to sign up for a few courses? Jesus says, I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be part of my mission. I want to come into your life and revolutionize it from the inside out. Look at this, Simon Peter, with his miraculous catch of fish, is experiencing a real tension. I mean, think what's on the shore. What is on the shore as he comes to shore? It's not just the nets. It's not just the boats. These nets are filled with everything Simon Peter needs for economic stability. This is, in all probability, the biggest catch of fish he's ever and will ever have. And yet Jesus is saying, you need to walk away from that. You need to walk away from the economic stability, from the financial security that you think are in those nets that I've just given to you, because I've got something even more important than that for you to be engaged in. Transforming his identity, transforming his priorities. And look at verse 11, is the third thing. They left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. He's on the cusp of professional uh, greatness, of economic security, as we've said, and success. But Jesus says, I'm going to come into your life and change your priorities, so that I want you to walk away from that and to follow me. That's what happens when Jesus comes into your life, just from the first encounter, verses 1 to 11. He gives you new goals. It gives you a new definition of security. It gives you new priorities. Your identity is revolutionised. Your work is refocused. Your attitude to money, your attitude to your status in society, your attitude to everything is changed and brought into line with his priorities. And that's what happens to Simon, to Simon Peter. It's interesting, he's only called Simon Peter here in the whole Gospels so that this transformation is happening from within his own life. I want you not to catch fish but to rescue people. One of the signs that you're encountering Jesus is that this starts to happen. Simultaneously you see the holiness of God. How can I come so close to a God that we've sung about this morning, before our God, or behold our God, seated on his throne, Come, let us adore him. How can you come close to a God like that? Through Jesus, who simultaneously affirms Simon and gives him new priorities. It's transformation. It's transformation. It's transformation uh, to ourselves. But secondly, in the second story, beginning in verse 12, Jesus' salvation doesn't just rewire who we are ourselves. It it rewires, it transforms our understanding of of other people. It's the second point. It transforms our understanding of ourselves, but secondly, it transforms our relationships with other people. Look at verse 12. It's this terrible story of personal and physical pain. There's a man who is full of leprosy. His whole body is riddled with it. And when you or I see that word leper, we immediately think of somebody who's lost their feelings, somebody whose skin is falling off them. And that's right. But I think this encounter with Jesus is there for a different reason. Let me show you. In the first century, without the NHS, there was a time before the NHS, there may be a time soon when it will be gone as well. Hopefully not in my lifetime. But this was more than just a physical uh, need. In the first century, lepers had a very, very hard time economically they wouldn't be able to work socially they'd be marginalized and pushed pushed out physically they wouldn't be embraced or touched lest people catch the same disease that they were experiencing this person is a complete outsider they would have been a jewish person they would have been excluded from the worship of god they were ceremonially unclean they couldn't be part of the people of god they would part of the uh, they couldn't be people of the, of the social elite they were complete outsiders they were marginalized they were economically poor they were relationally poor they were outsiders and here is jesus going to this person it's interesting they would have been excluded from society they wouldn't have been allowed to rub shoulders with normal uh, physically well people and yet here is a man in such great need having heard of jesus coming to town that he makes his way to the forbidden place where other people live. And he throws himself on Jesus' mercy. And what is this story here for? Notice what happens, verse 12. The leper comes to Jesus, to a place where he shouldn't have been. He's in the town, he made a mad dash rush for him, and he falls at his feet, verse 13, and asks for healing. But here's the thing that struck me for the first time this week. How does Jesus heal him? This is the point of the passage, I think. How does Jesus heal him? Nick said very helpfully, this is about authority, the authority of Jesus. In the next encounter with the paralytic, Jesus heals as he normally does with a word of power, power, authority and command. Think of the centurion later in the gospel. I'm a man who lives under authority, says the centurion, just say the word. You don't even have to come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. I recognize that you're a man of great authority. Here is Jesus who teaches with authority, who heals with authority. And yet how does he heal this man? He touches him, verse 13. It says he reached out his hand and he touched him. He could have used a word, but Jesus chooses intentionally to reach out and touch this man. This is a man who's not probably felt human touch and embrace for a long time. And yet Jesus chooses to touch him. His whole concern is to restore this outsider to the community that he has been excluded from. He's reaching out to him literally, but also uh, metaphorically as well. He wants to bring him back into the community that has excluded him, that has uh, ostracised him, that has marginalised him. That's what he's most concerned about. He wants to show the transformation that is happening in this man's life. Look at what it says. Go to the priest. Prove that you're clean now. Here's Jesus breaking all the rules. He crosses every boundary and he touches this man. That means he will be ceremonially unclean. And yet why does Jesus not have to go and uh, clean himself up again? Why does Jesus not have to go and purify himself? We need to think about this. Every religion in the world operates on a different premise. Every religion in the world says if you've made a mistake, you need to make atonement. If you've become impure, then you need to purify yourself. Every religion in the world operates in that way. If you uh, obey the rules, if you do enough good, if you keep... Uh, the parameters of the teacher or the guru, then God or a holy being will be pleased to allow you into heaven. You would have done enough. You will make yourself fit enough, clean enough, good enough for the presence of God. That's how every religion in the world works, generally speaking. So why does Jesus not have to go and clean himself up when he's made himself impure? What is Luke telling us? Luke is saying... There's no way that you can make Jesus unclean. Luke is saying it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be made fit for the presence of God by coming into an encounter with this person, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your impurity will actually be replaced by his purity. Your mistakes will be replaced by his perfect record. His cleanness becomes yours. His righteousness replaces your your filthy rags, your mistakes in your life, your sin, your brokenness is replaced by his wholeness. That's why Jesus doesn't need to go and make himself pure, because he's God. And this is the first of two banners that Luke has put next to each other to say, can't you see who Jesus is? This salvation that seems kind of up here, this is what it looks like on ground roots level there's no gap to be crossed here this is salvation that transforms your identity to yourself and it transforms how you relate to other people as well but how can god's perfect record become yours how can you change how you uh, react to and relate to other people how can someone like simon who's so sinful someone who makes so many mistakes just like me and just like you How can you simultaneously be uh, aware of the holiness of God, but also be affirmed and loved and accepted in a way that you've always dreamt of, but never ever experienced in your life? The third story tells us how, beginning in verse 17. Jesus transforms our relationship with ourselves, with other people. And finally, verse 17, Jesus' salvation transforms. Listen carefully. Jesus' salvation transforms our relationship with God got that? Transforms our relationship with ourselves, with other people, and thirdly and finally, Jesus' salvation transforms our relationship with God himself, verse 17. Here we have a really famous story, it's an incident of a paralytic, he's an immobilised man, he has some friends who hear about the power and authority of Jesus and they want him sorted out, they want him healed. And so they bring him to the house where Jesus is teaching. Jesus is there right in the centre of the house. It's packed to the gunnels. There's an overflow. There's no uh, internet live streaming. So people actually have to be there. And every house, just like there is in Portugal and Greece, the Mediterranean Islands, every house in this culture, there would be a set of steps going up by the side of the house to the roof. There'd be a flat roof. And the roof would be considered part of the house, not just something that needed to be plugged now and then. And notice what Jesus says. Verse 19, the friends climb the staircase, they do a a pile of damage that would make the roofers pleased the next day when they get the phone call to come and repair the mess. And then, having torn up the roof, having lowered him down, Jesus utters these famous and striking words. Verse 23. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And at this point, in this story... There are three perplexed groups of people. Number one, there's the homeowner. thinks, what on earth is going on here? I've just had that act. Number two, more seriously, there's the group of friends. Look at what the group of friends expect and what they experience. The friends lower down their mate, who's paralytic, and they hear these words from Jesus, verse 23, your sins are forgiven. Now, what would they say? This is not what we hoped for. We thought we were coming here and you would help our friend. We thought that you would fix up his legs. You're supposed to be a healer. You're supposed to be a man who teaches and has authority. And now, we've wrecked a roof. You've not given us what we signed up for. We're out of here. They could have said that. But what do they say? Do you know the number of a good lawyer? Because we're going to get sued for the damage we've done? They don't say that either. They don't say thank you very much. What do they say? You just said walk. We don't want you to say walk. We don't want you to say get up. And now you said your sins are forgiven. That's not what we're here for. Look at the second or the third group of people. You've got the, the owner who's fed up. You've got the friends who are saying, this is not what we've come here. Then you've got the Pharisees. Look at what they say. Verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, people who know their Bible, they ask a question how can he forgive sins only God can forgive sins and when Jesus Christ looked at the man he says all your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees when they heard him say that knew exactly what Jesus was saying Jesus is putting a second big banner saying I am God I don't need to get clean I take people's impurity upon myself. I take their sin and their need and brokenness. I reach out to lepers and make them whole again. And here in this third story, it shows us the transformative power, what happens when God comes into your life in your relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. That's your greatest need. And Jesus is unfolding this banner in this story saying, God is among you. He's claiming to be God with his actions. He looks at this man, his brokenness and his need, and he says, your greatest need is not that you become physically whole. And isn't this a message that our culture does not want to hear? Your greatest need, says Jesus, is what I will deal with first. It is not physical wholeness. It is not health and the perfect figure. It is not fitness and fame. Your greatest need, says Jesus, is that you need to be rescued. You need to be rescued. You need to be restored to your maker. You need your sins forgiven. You might have broken limbs. You might be immobilized since the day you were born. But actually physical well-being is not your greatest need. You need to be made whole. And I want to do that. I want to rescue you. I want to remove this barrier that there is because of your own sin and rebellion and brokenness between you and your maker. And God is among you that's what Jesus is saying. There's only one disease that will actually destroy you eternally and it's your own sin and I've come to deal with that. God is among you, physical suffering can't destroy you but the effects of your sin will last all the way into eternity. See what Luke is showing us? At every point in these three stories, Luke wants us to see something about Jesus jesus has come to affirm sinful people like simon like you and me he's come to touch people who are unclean and he says i can make you clean and only i can and now with a word he says to someone who is broken actually i am the only one who can forgive your sins now how can he say that those are audacious claims three audacious encounters that Lucas put side by side to say this is what it means to become a Christian it transforms your identity it changes how you relate to other people and most importantly of all it changes how you relate to God one after the other the other how can Jesus say this because of the cross that's how Jesus can say this How can Jesus come in and not just make me into a nice cottage, but make me into a palace where he can live because of the cross? That's how he can say it. On the cross, friends, Jesus, think about this. On the cross, Jesus bore the very sins that he took from this man. How can Jesus say, your sins are forgiven? Because he knew that he was going to bear the sins for that man and for you and I on the cross. When he went to the cross, Jesus Christ was mobile, He had all his mobility and yet he willingly became immobile as his hands and feet were nailed to the cross so that this man who was immobile for the moment might be made mobile again. Think of it that way. And this leper, this leper who who kind of runs and uh, crawls along the ground to get to the person of Jesus, Jesus accepts him. Why? Why does Jesus accept this outsider? Because he became an outsider. He was crucified outside the city gates. When Jesus died, he was paralysed so that you and I can walk again. He was ripped apart so that we might become whole again. He became unclean and he was forsaken by his Father so that you and I can be brought inside into a relationship with him that satisfies forever. It's what we were made for. Because Jesus is in the business of redemption and transformation C.S. Lewis said, again, God is not in the business of making people nice. Not small changes. God is in the business of making people new. He's in the business not just of merely improving people with an extension here and there. He transforms people's lives. He transforms how we view ourselves, how we relate to other people, and that all stems from how we relate to him. C.S. Lewis says, God became man. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And here are three signs that God is beginning to work in your life. Can you relate to any of these three encounters? Are you being transformed in your view of yourself? I'm more sinful than I ever thought I was because I've seen the beauty and the holiness of God and yet God is reaching out to you in Jesus because he wants to have a relationship with you. He's not in the business of making houses he's in the business of making living homes where he can dwell let's pray together Father we do thank you for the Gospel of Luke we thank you for the careful ordered written account that we have in our hands it's uh, historically rooted it's uh, intellectually uh, cohesion and viable it's something that we can stand upon that truth faith can live from the source that comes from this book pray for friends amongst us that are not yet Christians I pray that they'll continue to be dealt with by you thank you so much Father that At the cross, we can see how much you love us, the full extent of your love, as John's Gospel says. We can see the passion that Jesus had to make your fame and your renown known, to make much of you. I pray that we would be that kind of people as well, that our lives would be uh, rewired, reprogrammed so that we'd have a new desire, a new passion to make you known, right here in Epsom and in Yule. And I pray that we'd also have a heart as you rewire us and give us new priorities, that we would love other people. But I pray our first priority would be to love you more. So help us to think through this, I pray, and to be changed by the gospel every single day. Amen.